The following episode of the Carl Landry Record Club is the following episode of the Carl Landry Record Club is supposed to be about two albums, one from Nine Inch Nails and one from Rihanna. However, we get sidetracked and never get to the Rihanna album like we say we're going to do at the beginning of the episode. We have saved that album and we'll do it in next week's podcast. Thank you for listening. Hey there, welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club music podcast from the rights Ricky Sanchez. Our opening song right there, I've realized I've forgotten to mention that the last few times we've done pots, is uh, is from Marion Hill. You might like the song so much you want to go find it, but you can't. So uh, our pot is the only place that you exclusive, can. Baby. Yeah, exclusive, baby. Yeah, exclusive. I'm Spike along with my buddy Mulu. How are you, friend? Good, man. Good, man. How about yourself? I'm great. I have a uh, I have a, a thought experiment for you before we start talking about uh-huh. music, actually, that I heard <laughs> on a podcast that that has been not troubling me is the wrong word, but has occupied my brain for about two days. In in any case, b- before we get to that, we are a music appreciation podcast. Talk about a couple of albums almost every episode. We'll do two albums today. We're going to do Rihanna and Nine Inch Nails. We'll get to that. What a in, combo, man! In, in, very good combo. Great combo. <laughs> uh, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I, I heard this, and I don't expect you to have an answer to this thought experiment. There isn't an answer, obviously. But I heard it on a podcast a couple of days ago, and I can't get it out of my brain. So I was listening to one of the podcasts I listen to all the time is this guy, Lex Friedman, who is a uh, an AI and robotics guy, but does mm. these like long, thinky podcasts, like really long with all types of people. And I, I really enjoy listening to him, but I, I didn't want to listen to any of the new ones. So on a drive, we were driving down for Thanksgiving. I went through some old ones and I was like, ah, I don't know who this guy is. Some guy that writes a blog. I'll listen to this one. It was a good one. But halfway through, the guy introduces this thought experiment and he says, make pretend everyone wakes up one day and let's say a witch, a higher power, whatever, has taken away every man-made thing that we have. Anything created by us, buildings, clothes, is all gone. But all of our knowledge is there. We all know everything that we've, what we already know. We're all full of knowledge, but everything man-made is gone. And we are told that we can get everything back if we create an iPhone 13, identical to the iPhone 13 that is in an Apple store currently but we are starting with nothing. So that includes no farms, no, no clothes, no factories, no cars, no oh, communication. Wow. All, everything's gone. How long would it take for people to create that iPhone 13? Or what I, what I eventually came to is that I don't even know that it would ever happen, I don't think. So the iPhone 13 would be the portal through which we would have to figure everything out? No. The iPhone 13 is what we have to create and we get everything back. Oh, if we oh, ac- oh, If oh. we accomplish this task of creating the iPhone 13, everything comes back. Okay. At first I was thinking like you have to somehow – actually, it's a different kind of thought experiment, but you have to somehow erase everything like you said – and through creating a device, you no. have to figure out how to relaunch society. No, 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 no. But this it, is something else. The, the creating the device is the trick to get everything back. We are, we are told- And it magically appears if we do that? Yes, everything magically But we don't appears. have the materials. Nope. But we know we have the know-how. Okay, that was my next question. Do we, if we know how to do it, 
Yep. Then we can absolutely figure it out because we know what the all those products start with raw earth materials. Right, but how we know you, that. How are you going to get those raw earth materials and how are you going to communicate with others who also know how to do it? How are you going to find them? Because everything's been wiped out as everything's far as gone. There's no telephones, there's no internet. <laughs> oh my well, well, doesn't that kind of just end it right there? Right I don't know. Then? I don't know. Well, like if, if we are presented, if we all know, if we all wake up and know that this is the answer to the question, what is it? Are we capable of doing it again? And well, how long would it take? Well, okay, if we don't have access to the raw earth materials. Well, yeah, not not immediate access. Not the raw immediate earth materials access. are there, obviously. Yes, but yeah, couldn't we couldn't we find a way if we have the know-how and we have all the collective the resource of collective intelligence mm-hmm. and know-how, mm-hmm. we could synthetically create something that would provide us with another version of the raw earth materials from which then we could rebuild the manufacturing infrastructure to then i mean it's a it's it's it's, it's a, a long thing. haul it's a long haul. it probably would take years realistically and if we could synthetically create what is the raw earth materials we would solve a lot of the world's problems actually like right. we would just do that now because there's a devastating level of yes global economic inequality yes that comes from the exploitation of those resources right so we could actually make a better world and a better iPhone but if we could do that more <laughs> cheaply than we're doing it now wouldn't we do that well that wouldn't work because eventually corporations would take hold again and they wouldn't they wouldn't accept that let me ask you this <laughs> wouldn't there be a faction of people who see what happened and work against us getting all of these man-made things back. Sure, to, because I think some people... Would, would see it as a, a blessing almost, that, that we're right. getting rid of the trappings of what we've created. Well, we, we talk about the toxic nature of social media. Right. What is our access point to that content that seems to create more division than anything else? Right. It, it, it's those devices. Uh, right, right. So you will have a movement unequivocally, undoubtedly working against you, working against it because they'll see because they'll look at it and they'll say, well, this was the scourge of humanity. This is and, how we fell apart. And remember, we don't have anything. So while you're trying to create synthetic cobalt, um, <laughs> th- we're going to have to feed ourselves. So that would take precedence because we can't. There's no way we can think about even, you know, creating the synthetic resources without figuring that out first. But I'll say this. Mm -hmm. There is this movement now even, you know, for example, like urban farming. Yes, to be self-sustaining. Right, right. right. We still have soil, don't we? We still have soil. Right. We we have farming know-how. We just, we have to figure out how to pull the We as a collective, just not you and me. (laughs) Not, definitely not me, definitely, yeah. I would think maybe you would know better than me. No, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, definitely not either of us. But come on, like honestly, <laughs> if you just told me, here's here's where I came to. If you just told me everything exists except for our food making, we wake up one day, same same thing. My house is still here, blah blah blah. Except all the food is gone, and the food making factories are gone, and the processes are gone. 
Like I would actually not even make it a week. Like I would, no. if you told me I just had to, all I had to do was figure out how to feed myself, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do it. And uh, I think we would all kill each other. Even I'm over absolutely that. in that same camp with you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but one thing it makes me think about is, yep. you know, if you think about if there's a, an oil crisis, mm-hmm. right? Because the, the trucking industry, the shipping industry is what, helps create the supply chain for us to get the food that we need. Sure, yep. So there are a lot of people who have this idea that, you know, there's a finite amount of time that that supply chain will last. And, you know, as there's more of a, if there becomes a water crisis, if there becomes a true oil crisis like we've never seen, what happens to the ship, What happens to the shipping industry that yeah. then provides us with the goods we need? So in a way, if we had to start over, we might look at that and say we need to find a way to source our own food locally. Uh, we need to find well, ways to to we create our own food. Yeah, I mean we do, we but did, I mean a lot of it is shipped. A, a no, lot of I, I mean I mean originally before shipping, right. I, you know, everybody was responsible for their own. Right, there was you a know, time. And maybe not individually, but maybe at least in our own towns. Like if you're buying vegetables, you should buy vegetables from your own, like from your own area, you know, support your own area rather than these giant factory farms that create all the wheat and all the corn and all the beef and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And then you also support a local economy when you, when you do that. But. So the iPhone, you're. <laughs> it was forget about the iPhone. First, we got to figure out how we're going to eat. <laughs> how we're going to eat, yeah. and and then. But I'm I'm saying I think there there could be a way that we would actually uh, not reinvent, but just harken back to an earlier time where we were more concerned with creating our own food resources right in our local areas, right. creating that ecosystem, not allowing corporations to get this like stranglehold over it. Yeah, and maybe maybe things would change for the better. I, I, I don't know. I could be wrong, but uh, well, you and I'd be dead. I, I'm I'd be finished. from starvation. I have no clue. I I don't grass. even know how to turn this. I don't even know how to turn this computer on properly. Yeah, uh, I, I, yes, I don't, good point. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I can't. You know, first off, I'm a man of concrete. That's what I always say, to my friends. I've born and raised in the city. Mm. I'm terrified of even going into the like forest or the woods or anything because of. Because of, because of ticks, because of deer ticks, uh, because yeah. of Lyme disease. So yeah. I'm not like camping, things like that. That's not me. So I'm definitely not. But uh, you drive in cars and stuff, right? Yeah, and I, mm. I, feel, I don't feel good about it. Okay. I feel, <laughs> I feel the necessary amount of guilt. Perfect, perfect, perfect. I no, feel not guilty. guilt. I, I just meant I'm in fear. I'm in fear. I, like, like I almost have to turn my fear off of everything or I'll be afraid of everything. Like I, <laughs> like I, I need, I, I find this constant need to conquer the fears that I have because I'm afraid of being afraid of everything. Like th- this fear of the outdoors that you have, I had, and I'm, I'm like busy. And every time we go hiking, I'm terrified that around every corner, there is a bear. And, and, and they're very, and they, they're very well, maybe. Yes, and uh, we, every time we hike, there's some warning. It's like bears. And by the way, all of them have different, uh, every place has like a different way that you're supposed to scare the bear away. The best, <laughs> the best thing I've seen, and, and I've seen this repeatedly, is there are, the, the instructions are always like, if you see a bear, act real big and scream and you'll scare it away. And I'm like, oh, okay, 
sure. I'm not buying that. Yeah, sorry. That, so sorry. what you're telling me <laughs> is there's a giant bear in front of me, and my job is to scare the bear. Okay, sure. And <laughs> and but then I saw, but if you see the bear has cubs around, you need to run. Because uh, the bear will be protective of its cubs. And I'm just like, this is too hard. I'm just going to cross my fingers. So if the bear is single, let me get this straight. If the bear is single, doesn't yes. have a family yet. The bear, yes. the bear is just still dating. You know? Yes. Doesn't have a, yeah, doesn't have cubs, nothing. You can intimidate that bear. Yes. But the moment that bear has, has a family. Has to protect its young. Yeah. Then you're supposed to run. That's I mean. See, I don't buy that because I feel like you would never be able to intimidate the bear on its own to be. I'm with. with you. I'm not going to try to scare the bear. Are you kidding me? Is, is that just kidding? like one mass troll that, like, massive troll that the people who are. That, that all the pro hikers are doing yeah. and all the beginner they're hikers. Trolling, they're just trolling hikers. Yeah. I think. The, 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 uh, the expert hikers are out on the trail dying laughing at people getting eaten as they've tried to scare a bear. What if you, like, throw food in a certain direction? Wouldn't that work better? No, it says to try to scare it, that it doesn't like loud noises, and, and by putting your arms up, you can appear to be bigger than it is. That's interesting. Yeah, so whatever. All right, you want to talk about music? Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Let's now, see, now I'm going to be thinking about what you said. Uh, about, about the, the iPhone or experiment. the bear? It, well, uh, the bear, but more yeah. so the iPhone thing. Yeah, the iPhone thing I've been thinking about all day. There's so I, many things that you, as you think about it, you realize that you're not taking into account. Right. That's why it's complicated. So we didn't listen to music. My Val and I, my wife and I, listen to very different kinds of podcasts. And and instead of listening to music on the way there for Thanksgiving, I put on this podcast. And she looked at me and she was like, <laughs> "This is why you are as anxious as you are about things that you can't control." And I said, "No." I said, "There is relief in knowing that other people are thinking about it and thinking about solving." these right. issues that I think about. So I said, the fact that they think about things that you don't want to deal with, that's fine for you. It's fine for everybody to, to do it. But this is not, I said, I'm not learning to be this way from this podcast. I said, I am this way. And this podcast is a release for my, right. my ability to think that it way. It gives you a feeling of solidarity in the, yes, in this overall sense of worry Correct. Well, see, I'm a I'm a very anxious slash obsessive person. Yep. You know, and what I've come to realize about that, about anxiety, OCD, these kind of things, is it's a constant struggle to accept that you can't control so many things, and that's right. why yeah, that's why those behaviors emerge. That's where the anxiety comes from. And if you constantly, you and I seem to be similar in that way that. Mm -hmm. We're troubled by things <laughs> that we can't control. Yes, which is true of a lot of people, and that's you're right. You need resources to, uh, you know, not necessarily just mental health therapy, but you need maybe it's a good podcast, maybe it's a record, whatever. You need things like that to like sort of level you a little bit, not feel alone in it. Yeah, I think sometimes the better you understand something, uh, now sometimes the better you understand something, the more scared, for lack of a better word, you get of it. But most times the confrontation of it and the dissecting of it, uh, I think demystifies it in a way. Even if you still can't control it, you at least understand better. I feel better about it, right? Yeah, like, you can wrap your head around it a little more. Yes, like, like take the, the idea of, a, of nuclear war and, and Russia. Like I obviously have very little say 
Right. And, and rather Putin. That's another Jesus. thing that you and I have no control over. Very little say. That and farming. Yes, very little say in both farming <laughs> and what Putin does. But learning about it for some reason makes me feel better than, it doesn't make me feel any safer, but it makes me feel better than I felt when I didn't know about it, when it was more mysterious, I think. Makes sense. It makes yeah. sense. But then I'll say one last thing before we yes. jump to the records. Sure. One thing is the more you study and research something, the deeper you go into it, you realize actually how little you you know. That's right. why yes, to yes, me, yes, yes, yes. there's yes. nothing more dangerous, uh, and there's a lot of this online, than half-baked intelligence. Sure. Like you take yeah. a few little nuggets of something and you've decided that you know what you're talking about. And it happens constantly. I, I would say that most of the... Most of the uh, the culture war split in our country has to do with perceptions over reality, over the, over the content itself, right. and the belief of what the the people who don't agree with you think about those things. And exactly. and, and and it is that half baked imagery that makes it hard. It makes it impossible to even have a conversation about, you know, it is, I, I think is a lot of what we are at odds with is, is lack of understanding of both the, the high level topic and the empathy of what the other person actually believes. You know, I think those right. things are whittled down to, you know, sent a sentence or a, or a, a headline. Which is so dangerous because uh, yeah, that doesn't sure. in, in come close to encapsulating what the essence of a real conversation or idea or thought or a narrative should be. For sure. And yeah. that's why, and unfortunately the sites that we're spending our time on are calibrated to keep that dissonance in place. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So there's going to yeah. have to be some kind of paradigm shift. But again, Absolutely. probably you and I are probably not the guys. No, We're not going to stop nuclear war. We probably won't create the paradigm shift. Maybe we can play a role in that. I think we have a better chance of that. We definitely can't farm, but we can do a couple things. Just want to just wanna talk about some tunes. Yeah, that's just, it, man. You know what? Can we talk about some tunes? Let's yeah. talk about some tunes. Yeah. It, it's funny. The... You know what? No, we'll skip over that part. Well, we'll <laughs> let's get to the tunes. So, this could we'll, almost become a whole like yeah, separate a whole podcast. Pod. Yeah, yeah. Guess. Okay, let's get to the tunes. Get, <laughs> we do we do one album from either Moot Lou and I every week. We we pick an album, not together, but one of us picks an album, and then there's a listener album. So listener album this week is Rihanna's "Good Girl Gone Bad" from '07 suggested to us on Twitter from the Lakeview pod, which is another podcast oh, that I nice. don't know what that podcast is about, but uh, tweeted at me, have you guys done Rihanna yet? And I said, we have not done Rihanna yet. And I said, which Rihanna album? And uh, Lakeview pod said, good girl gone bad is vintage early Rihanna. So we'll do that one. And then my, it's my week. So my album is an album that I think I almost picked before, or I must said that I was going to pick. And then I didn't pick is Nine Inch Nails, The Downward Spiral from 1994. Certainly a, a an important alternative rock record, a seminal alternative rock record. Why don't we, let's go to the coin flip. And um, you know what? Can Google flip coins? I like when Google does it. There we go. Um, no, that's Google Assistant. Why is this always so hard for me? Uh, here we go. Let's say Rihanna, should Rihanna be heads or tails? Let's say Rihanna's heads. Rihanna's heads. Flip and tails. So we'll go Nine Inch Nails first. Right. 
my selection. And thank you, Lakeview Pod, for listening and for suggesting. If you want to suggest an album, do in the Apple Podcast reviews. Just leave us a review, five stars all the way. Leave us a review and in the review, put the album that you want. Or you can just tweet at us at CLRCPod or the website is carllandryrecordclub.com. There's a contact form there if you don't. Um, and actually, I think you can send a message on Spotify. You know how to get up. Just, yeah, I was curious. Is there? Have, I hope they'll create a mechanism. On uh, Spotify? Yeah, that's similar to Apple Podcasts. So Because I know we have... A lot of people who listen on listen Spotify. on Spotify, but yeah, they so can't give us reviews there. Or they can't like. There's a so there's a Q and A. There's a Q and A section of Spotify that I found, but you can only use it when you're using their platform to upload your pods, which is called Anchor. Uh, we don't use Anchor, uh, but we can sp- sw- switch to Anchor and use that, and that way we can just put it in the podcast. Suggest now, you can leave comments or whatever. That'd be nice. That'd yeah. be nice. So we'll uh, that. Another another way for people to reach sure. out to us. Nine Inch Nails, the downward spiral. Nine Inch Nails is, for all intents and purposes, Trent Reznor, though there have been a lot of other uh, important artists. We'll get to one, uh, Richard Patrick, associated with Nine Inch Nails, but has always been Trent Reznor. For the last five years or so, a gentleman named Atticus Ross has been his primary collaborator. But prior to that, it was really just Trent Reznor and then and then artists that he would hire to tour with him. And uh, Atticus Ross, I think, was more, it, that collaboration came out more from his film composing career. Correct. He's, he's become a... a a, a very well-known score uh, person who does uh, film scores. And he's one of the best. He's great at it, especially, a, and you can, we'll get to it when we talk about Downward Spiral, but you can hear it in Downward it's Spiral. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah right it's, it's clearly there. Like he's telling a story, he's creating a world, like all of those things. And especially, I haven't looked at his his credits, but there are certain ones where, you know, I think he did Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. I'm yeah. pretty sure he did that, that one. That was an incredible score. Like, if you could have any person in the world do the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo score, it would be Trent Reznor yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Like, that <laughs> that movie feels like a, a, a Nine Inch Nails song. So Nine Inch Nails, quote unquote, formed in 1988. It, in those 30 plus years, has sold 20 million albums, been nominated for 13 Grammys, won two of them. An outstanding live performer, by the way, have seen uh, Nine Inch Nails and excited to have seen Nine Inch Nails. And it's always been him in the studio, and you will uh, you will really appreciate this quote. So he was in a synth pop band and then left that synth pop band to do things on his own. And at the time that he left, he was an assistant engineer and a uh, like a janitor, for lack of a better word, at this uh, recording studio. And the person who owned the recording studio said he could record for free, but he had to do it in the middle of the night when there was nobody else working. So recording, he had to do from 3 a.m. to 8 a.m. And he couldn't find anyone to join him and do it then. So he said, this is a quote from the, the making of the record. This was an article that came out in 95. I had this romantic notion that, well, Prince did it himself, and I fully respected him for that. So I just started to do it. I was intimidated by guitars because I always liked them, but I couldn't play them worth shit. I thought if I could come up with a guitar part, every guitar player in the world would say, that's easy. Anyone could do that. And then I realized, like, who the fuck cares? <laughs> so he used Prince as a, uh, as a role it. model for doing everything, right? The only thing he didn't play was drums, 
he used drum machines for for all of his drums. So that which was, uh, Prince also. I mean, yeah, Prince could play drums, but there was definitely a lot of drum programming in uh, in his sound I, as well. I will say, I don't know how you feel about it. You're obviously far more of a musician than I am, but I like to think of myself as someone who at least has good rhythm and I can play guitar some. And the few times that I've sat behind a kit trying to put my brain together to do, to play drums, even something incredibly simple, my brain could not like short circuited trying to do it. Like it is, it is almost the ultimate of walking of like patting your head and rubbing your belly at the same time right. or something. Like it is a, uh, when I see amazing drummers, I am more in awe actually than I am of amazing guitar players because I can at least conceive of an amazing guitar player. The drums part of it is just, my brain does not work that way. You know, I think because you have a good sense of rhythm, if you spent more time with it, you would, maybe sat down with like a drum teacher or something, the muscle memory would kick in. Because I'm not like a great drummer by any stretch, but I can play some beats. Okay, yeah. And there's sort of a muscle memory thing that also happens with guitar too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for uh, sure. And, you, you know, like for me, I tour so much solo, it's all about singing and playing. And that's second nature to me at this point. Singing and playing, it just feels natural. And I think the same thing happens with a kit. I'm sure the more you play... I think the most important thing is, like you say, you have a good sense of rhythm, so you could do it. But yeah, there's that initial hump where you have to reconcile all this in your brain that, you know, your multiple appendages are going to be doing multiple things at the same time. Yes, yeah. So he recorded some demos, got in, uh, did some opening uh, touring with Skinny Puppy, which is a an industrial band, a Canadian industrial band. And then eventually got to deal with TVT Records, uh, an independent record label that... I assume TVT probably got swallowed up uh, eventually by a, a major. Um, do they still? They don't exist anymore, TVT Records. I remember uh, Seven Dust was on TVT. Um, it's a pretty big, pretty yeah, big label for a while. Dashboard was on TVT. Gravity Kills, another industrial band. Um, anyway, so he signed to TVT and uh, records Pretty Hate Machine, which uh, ends up being... A, a pretty big success, especially for an independent record, and definitely showed a not nearly as dark, I would say, as he would eventually get, and definitely showed a better connection to the sort of what's the word I'm looking for? Like dance, not dance. Uh, what, what's the the kind of music I'm looking for? Like club dance music. There, there was, a, there's a, there were hooks in Pretty Hate Machine, and there was like groove to Pretty Hate Machine, and it wasn't just this hard industrial stuff that people think of. I think when they think of industrial music, it spends 113 weeks on the Billboard Top 200 albums. Wow. Head like a hole, and down in it. Well, head like a hole becomes sort of like a minor hit, and then they get uh, a slot on Lollapalooza '91, which ends up being not only massive for exposure, especially for the song Down In It, but ends up sort of changing their trajectory in terms of the vibe of the band as Reznor tried to capture that they, they played harder when they played live. Like there was something far more aggro about their performance of these songs than the songs were on their own. And he tried to harness that with the next couple of records. So he hated being on TVT because of creative differences. Somehow 
Interscope wants to sign him, and Jimmy Iovine like like negotiates his separation from TVT so he can come, so Trent Reznor can come to Interscope. Wow. Which Reznor said he was uncomfortable with because he was sort of like trading he like he was trading one thing that he wasn't happy with with something else that he could potentially not be happy with an even uh, bigger corporation correct <laughs> correct but jimmy Iovine, at least at the time always seemed artist friendly like seemed to care about music you know yeah. care about the business whatever i think um, that's because he himself was a guy who made records right he, was, he wasn't just like a, a an exec Right. He was a guy who was an engineer and a mixer, so he, I think he saw things a little differently than your standard, you know, record company mogul. So to make his next records, <laughs> Trent Reznor rents the house that Sharon Tate was murdered in by oh, the Manson what? family. Are you serious? Yes. Uh, they named it La Pig. La Pig, because Pig was written in blood, I guess. Just to soak in all that horrible vibe. Right. Those horrible vibes. Yes. He... <laughs> Um, and they built a recording studio in the the house. Here is a quote from Reznor. While I was working on the downward spiral, I was living in the house where Sharon Tate was killed. Then one day I met her sister, Patty Tate. It was a random thing, just a brief encounter. And she said, are you exploiting my sister's death by living in her house? For the first time, the whole thing kind of slapped me in the face. I said, no, it's just sort of my own interest in American folklore. I'm in this place where a weird part of history occurred. I guess it never really struck me before, but it did then. She lost her sister from a senseless, ignorant situation that I don't want to support. When she was talking to me, I realized it for the first time. What if it was my sister? I thought, fuck Charles Manson. I went home and cried that night. It made me see there's another side to things, you know. And he said he had nightmares the first night that he, uh, he stayed in there. So he actually put out an EP, produced an EP out of there. Wait, was that the Wish EP? Hold on. This, this I should have written down. I can't even remember. Discord. Sort of like a promo. Well, no, EP? it was actually. I, it's funny uh, we say that because at this point, it would it had seven songs on it, so that would be it an would, album. It would have been an <laughs> album. Broken it was the broken EP. I'm sorry, and then the broken EP actually takes the first step toward darkness, and there's a video of. I'm looking for my uh, my notes are all over the place here. Awful video. That came out from this album from Wish. Oh, Happiness and Slavery. So, man, what a. Yeah. So there's a song on the EP. Unsettling title there. Yeah. So there's a a video. I I watched the video yesterday. I had never watched the video before for Happiness and Slavery, which was obviously they knew wasn't going to get shown anywhere. It's a guy, it's basically like a, a. a video of one of the Saw movies. It is a guy that straps himself to a machine that like seems to give him some sort of sexual pleasure, but basically kills him. He's bleeding in the middle, like it's a torture machine that he straps himself to. And that's what happiness and slavery is. So, man, um, I guess I'm not, when you think of this music, I'm not necessarily surprised, but yeah, that is a, the fact that this had that, this level of commercial success with those kind of ideas and concepts is kind of incredible to me. Yeah, absolutely. So, so he in the, the Sharon Tate house, he produces the Broken uh, EP and then uh, the Downward Spiral, which was produced by Flood 
And Flood is a pretty famous producer, has produced Depeche Mode and U2. And it was the only album that Flood would produce for Nine Inch Nails because of creative differences. You can imagine producing Trent Reznor might be might be a, a difficult... He seems like someone who just had too clear of a vision of what he wanted to do. What he wants. He needs, and I assume he needed... Uh, and I think Rick Rubin played a part in this album finally coming out. A producer like Rick Rubin that would be, you know, show up once a month and go... <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I still don't understand that. What I, Rick Rubin I, does. <laughs> I, I, st- I just can't, because I've made records... When you're making a record with somebody, with a producer, you're supposed to be in the trenches together. Yeah. That's what it is. If there's an interpersonal thing, I don't understand how a guy can show up once a month and say he produced an album, then he didn't produce the album. He comes in and he goes, yo, that song fucking sucks. And then he leaves. He's gone for another month. Man, um, no, no, sorry. Sorry. I don't, I don't buy that. It's just ridiculous. So the downward spiral is a, at least loosely, I, I would say far, more than loosely, a concept album about um, anxiety, depression, uh, how you interact with the pressures of the world from religion and uh, a, a drug abuse and out uh, relationships and government and all of those things and essentially ends in this person killing themselves at the end of the album is how it works. So it is a... Um, Talk about atmospheric. I mean, it, you know, I mentioned a, I mentioned the video for Happiness and Slavery being like a Saw movie. This entire album feels like someone like trapped in a basement dungeon or something. Like it is, it is sinister in a lot of different ways. It is the, the fact that it is trying to explore. Uh, it's certainly not a positive view on religion in, in most of it, but the fact that it is it is exploring that anxiety and one person's battle getting through that, uh, it's appropriate, but it is appropriately dark. There's a lot of like cool sampling in this album. He said that he would record guitars. Basically, when he would look for guitar parts, he would play guitar for 20 or 25 minutes straight and then just find something that he did that he liked and use that part um, in in the album rather than, you know, trying to write a song. And, And the songs themselves are not your normal verse, chorus, verse songs. No, not at all. Uh, it, it plays around with aggression in sort of the typical way, like Mr. Self-Destruct comes, is the first song in the album. distorted vocals and metal guitars and all of those things. But then almost with the same sort of feeling and same sort of vibe, it becomes lighter and more sinister. Like the second song is the song Piggy. which is 
almost sounds like a nursery, like a, a demented nursery rhyme in its like <laughs> it's a good cadence, way of putting it. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and all of that with, and by the way, another reference to pig, which is another reference to the, the Tate house and has an amazing way with Trent Reznor has an amazing way with words. I think sometimes when he's being straightforward, which he is a lot of times in this album, but even that song piggy with the last minute and a half is just him saying nothing can stop me now nothing can stop me now nothing can stop me now which becomes a a theme as well i thought not now obviously the the big hit from this record becomes closer you let me violate you you let me desecrate you you let me penetrate you you let me complicate you with which it, the video becomes uh, a, a massive hit as well the video incredibly dark and incredibly unsettling and scary um, the song itself is like he said is a great quote it's super negative and super hateful. It's, I'm a piece of shit and I'm declaring that if you think you want me, here I am. I didn't think it would become a frat party anthem or a titty dancer anthem, which <laughs> it, it became because of the, the chorus, uh, you know, I want to fuck you like an animal became like, That's I jarring guess. when you hear that. I remember that stirred up some controversy. It got me thinking about our conversation with Steve Hyden mm -hmm. about that time in the nineties. Cause he talks about it in, in, in his book about there was this kind of embrace of this like macho toxic kind of uh, kind of attitude and yeah. I, w I wonder if it was almost in a weird way co-opted in that way yeah yeah i i think it probably was well even eddie v a lot of eddie vetters like me his fear with a lot of his music is that it would be co-opted by people like that you know i think that's everyone's as a rock guy you're that's not that's not, who, that's not who you're trying to get it to. That's yeah, not who you're and, trying to endear yourself to. And it's almost like a caricature of of what you don't want and that there's nothing inherently wrong with some guy in a college that, uh, that likes party music or whatever, but it's not what you're thinking about when you're thinking. So like the misinterpretation of what you're trying to say is is the most frustrating part of it, I think. The, the album is, and then... I mean, I could talk about every song on this album. I, I think the other important part of it is almost like is Eraser.
an incredible sequence, man. Hurt myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain. The only thing that's real. Yeah. That set of songs right there. Like a racer is haunting and sort of like this you feel the final descent into the madness of what i think he's feeling it, it almost there's that one song on the on that album pain uh it's funny that you mentioned her because i was thinking about her as i was listening to this and that yeah, album well because there's that there's one track on that album that is that is uh, demented, demented is the wrong word, sort of like disturbing, sort of like I Ethel Kane. Demented works actually. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there, there's a track on the Ethel Kane album that like just sort of personifies the darkness of the album. And I think Eraser does that. And then it goes into Reptile, which it almost feels like there is almost like the vocals are no longer distorted and there's almost like a clarity to the situation that the uh, protagonist is in and then the downward spiral which is uh, I, I think representative of the suicide and then hurt which is the suicide note almost like sort of the epilogue to everything that's happened which you know is was made fame more famous hurt was a, certainly a big song for nine inch nails the Johnny Cash version, I think, gave it new life. But what I think people forgot about, amazingly, in the Johnny Cash version is that, look, I, the, the, the point in his life and him singing it was incredibly emotional and touching. However, it needed that song to exist first to happen. And I think like some of the discussion about Johnny Cash's version of Hurt doesn't really talk about the fact that he didn't change it that much. You know, it is a different person, but he does it pretty straight, like a pretty straightforward version of what that song is. And that song is maybe not as haunting and emotional as when Johnny Cash did it, but is haunting and emotional on its own, you know? So Absolutely. That's a lot of me talking without you talking. I, I, what is your relationship to the album and what did, you know, what is was your relationship to the album and then what do you think of it after revisiting, if you were revisiting at all? Well, I was aware of, uh, obviously, of Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails. Probably, I probably gained a greater level of interest in his work from the work he's done in films. Mm, okay. Because every film I've seen that he's scored is just extraordinary what he does with film composition, which is a a craft in and of itself. You know, we I guess we've only really had one film composer on with us, Daniel Hart, but mm -hmm. but that was great just talking to him and hearing cuz hearing how how you have to approach it, how you have to have this sort of broad stroke idea of what you want to do, but then also get very specific. And I guess listening to this record made me think of his film scores. Mm -hmm. and, and But I never had really done a deep dive into any of his tracks. We were talking about the Ethel Kane album, because I thought about that record when I was listening to this. The song, The Becoming. Mm -hmm.
I forget which tune of it is of hers. Maybe it's the one you're referring to. It's like the soundtrack to a nightmare. Yes. When yeah. You the put same that one. song on. Yeah. Uh, I almost had to like stop listening for a little bit. I had the same experience the other day. If you're listening in headphones. Yeah. There's uh, a lot there. And especially if you're already anxious and maybe mm-hmm. had too much coffee, like is generally the case for me. Uh, <laughs> you gotta like you gotta you gotta take this in in doses a little bit. One thing that I didn't pick up on, maybe because I was just so immersed in the sound, was the, the conceptual bent of this record. I guess I mm. sort of understood, sort of recognized that on a broad level. But I didn't the way you broke it down. I didn't see how specific it was as far as the whole arc. And maybe I'll go back and listen just to sort of absorb it in that way. But right out of the gate, this thing just grabs you like on mr self-destruct what i recognize with his productions it's so dense yeah there's just this density to how he layers things and even how he mixes it a lot people think sometimes it's like what makes a track feel dense in that way or have that vast soundscape sound is just in the recording but a lot of it is actually in the mixing Mm. because there's a way you can mix things that are when you put a lot of instruments together a lot of sounds together that doesn't have that vast sound, the mix has to be perfect to, to get that, give that effect. And he obviously understands how to do that. I'm thinking also of what you said about the nonlinear songwriting production arrangement approach, because that's absolutely the case. It, may, it makes per- perfect sense to me listening to this album that he went on to become a film composer because he doesn't seem to think of music in terms of you know pop conventions at all. And, and as he's gone on, it's been less and less. I think you could look at a pretty hate machine and, and see it tied to it more, even this album tied to it more than he would become. He, w- he would still have moments, but it feels like he his, his definition of what a song is became more and more sprawling as time went on. Right. There's a cinematic sweep even here that uh, as to how he produces and how he hears music. But there's also there are also unexpected musical moments. Uh, you know, it's not all just heavy industrial, you know, dense production, like uh, in March of the Pigs. Yeah. <laughs> Briefly goes to this like like kind of light piano. Doesn't it make you feel better? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like where did that come from? Yeah. I, I, I never. If you just isolated that moment of this album, I would never have thought that was on this record. Well, it's it is also to talk about the time that this came out. Quiet loud, which was something that Kurt Cobain, you know, oftentimes gets, you know. Uh, tied to the quiet loud thing he does exceptionally well on this on this album in moments like that i think absolutely and the only thing i wish is that there were more songs like a warm place Mm. because yes he can do the aggressive sound the the intense nightmarish sound but that is just a beautiful ethereal piece the a warm place that uh even downward spiral has elements of that yeah. You know, I almost was, wish there were a few more moments like that on the record. I think I might have, I, I guess that's just more my sensibility that when it's this kind of soundscape music that 
I would be, would have been looking for a few more moments like that within the intensity as a landing spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he clearly he has cl- such a clear vision of what he wants to do as a as a producer. When I when I think of this album, it's immensely influential. If you think about electronic music, not just I mean he personifies the industrial sound more than anyone. But if you think about electronic music that came in the later '90s and 2000s, just the production style, his sonic choices, that cinematic, vast soundscape approach. I think even to people that maybe wouldn't be fans of Nine Inch Nails, I think there's certain things he does production-wise that have been very influential on electronic music as a whole. Uh, And sort of like you've seen more and more of these one-man show kind of uh, productions, which I don't know if there was as much of that before him, was there? I don't know. I would have to map it out, but it does seem like there are more I do everything people post yeah. post Trent Reznor, certainly in the rock world than than there were the guitar based music, I would say, rather than rock world than than there were previous to that, for sure. Yeah, I think he's a he's a he's a game changing artist. Uh, even if you're not thinking about specifically about the songs, uh, which you know, he does write hooks, but in his but not in the context of like a traditional pop song. For sure. Uh, sort of approach. But yeah, I mean, he's just, there's no denying his influence, I think. And then when you think of the film work he's done, then it's like, okay, this guy is like, he's singular, I think, in the world of popular music. Yeah, for sure. I didn't realize he had done Gone Girl. I should have because it's a Fincher movie. I love Gone Girl. That's a great I, movie. I oh, love that. I think that movie gets better every time you watch it, actually. It's one of those movies that the first time you see it, you don't exactly understand what it's doing. Um, and it seems a little silly, but the more times you watch it, I feel like the more you sort of like are able to smile at the movie and understand that it's sort of like this weird, dark comedy. Um, yeah, it is. That, it is very you know, dark. Yeah. That, that like, that it doesn't appear to be um, at, at first. I didn't realize he had, he had done that. And he also, you talk about his influence, like he, you know, we could, uh, we, we don't need to, I, I think, uh, litigate the, the last five years of Marilyn Manson uh, and what has come to light. Right. But, but Manson as an artist and Manson as a performer was basically launched by Trent Reznor, you know, like it was, it was Reznor, Reznor's production and then Reznor bringing him on tour and then Reznor, you know, you could, uh, I, I, I don't think, Marilyn Manson made a lot of great music, but I, I think you could say that like the first three albums that he put out, especially after Antichrist Superstar, uh, that album like and Reznor's influence was op- was obvious. You I know, didn't was, realize he had such a big role in uh, in his yeah, career. They were, yeah, they were they were pretty tied together early on there, Manson and uh, and Trent Reznor. So uh, a great album, by the way, uh, the Downward Spiral, and I. He still has Nine Inch Nails. Still in further records would have moments, great moments, and I, I still think even good albums. I thought Year Zero was really cool. Um, also, the uh, that album had a was was also the impetus for another record label fight that I had. I don't have I talked about the Nine Inch Nails one. Oh, where you roll? Did you roll out a single too early again? Or well, something? like they. <laughs> so I, it was Year Zero, right? Hold Chicago on. or YSP? No, this is Chicago. All of my. My confrontations. Um, my confrontations were Chicago. Hold on, let me make sure. 
let me make sure. Now, like, if you interact with some of those promo, those label promo people now. We're all good now. It's all good. There's no animosity. Yeah. Oh, I was right. I I was, I was not right in the way that I handled it maybe, but I was right in the, it was year zero, in the, in the way that I was, um, what I was talking about with the industry. So before year zero came out, and this was 07, Reznor was leaving thumb drives in bathrooms where he would play shows with songs from the new album um, before those songs were serviced to radio, anything like that. So there was a song called My Violent Heart that was the first one to make it to the internet from one of these thumb drives. And we started playing it and we got a cease and desist from Interscope. Oh, really? Yeah. And I'll, I'll, it was Robbie Lloyd. I'll never forget him calling me and saying like, you can't play that anymore. And I said, do you understand what's happening here? I said, the, the artist, your artist did not tell you that he was going to do this, but he did it and that's right. happening. And you're telling me as a, as a radio station that supports this artist, there's music out that we cannot participate in. Yeah. Um, so we, I remember, I'll never forget, I was going to Italy and before I went to Italy, I asked the website guy to put the cease and desist on our website with an explanation as to why we're going to continue <laughs> playing it. And we played it every hour for an entire weekend. <laughs> oh my goodness. Now when you, I mean, I probably asked this question before cause you have a lot of stories like this. Yeah. What would happen with your higher ups? Like would they, would you get like a reprimand or? or? No, they, he was, they were supportive at this point, I think. Cause, cause the, 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 the problem with the record label a radio station relationship, at least at that point, not now, I'm talking about 15 years. I, I don't know anything about it now because I don't deal in it now. But 15 years ago is that you don't want to abuse it, but like everybody needs everybody else. Oh yeah, yeah. Everybody yeah. needs everybody else. Like we need the music. They need us to play the music. The artists need us to play it. Like there's, th there is a, that should should have been a motivation to work together on these things. But I think it was a, at a point in the industry where there was such fear of what was going to happen from that I, that I didn't give enough credit to. I, I think like looking back on it, I was like, fuck, all these people labels are trying to do is keep their jobs and keep their industry afloat. Yeah. And, and I am, by by doing what I'm doing, I am pointing out an issue that we don't have a, a, an answer for. Right. And it, it's, it's like the thing that you don't say or whatever. And that, that was the, the issue. Now, I don't know that there was a more proactive way that I could have handled it for sure. Like that would have, you know, I wasn't going to save radio and I wasn't going to save, uh, music, uh, but I, but I, I do think I was, my heart was in the right place. Like the label's heart was in the right place as well. I think part of the part of the reason that dynamic existed and maybe still exists too, and if you want to take this all the way back to Napster, is that in some on some level the labels kind of missed out on on that shift. They they couldn't they were so territorial and protect protective of their structure right. that they failed to understand what was happening with music and how people were consuming and discovering music. And that it just couldn't be, they couldn't profit off it in the same way. But if they'd gotten ahead of it and seen, like, like just your your situation there with the Nine Inch Nails song is a perfect snapshot. Like, if they could have viewed those situations differently, like, oh, wait, 
this is like a grassroots form of promotion. We're building heat around our artists. That could lead to sales. If they could have seen it that way, they they might have had more success with actually cornering the digital market early on because they resisted it so much. Well, I think I, it was to their detriment and to everyone's detriment. Yeah, I think that the problem was, A, they didn't have a solution. B, their relationship with artists was not great for a lot of reasons, right? Like there was a disconnect between the artist, especially the bigger artists who did whatever the fuck they wanted, like Nine Inch Nails or Tool or Radiohead or whoever these artists who didn't need them anymore was just using them basically as a distribution mechanism and as a bank, you know, like as a loan, like there wasn't that connection. But like, and and by the way, that's why Apple was able to, I mean, this is the, the completely other other story, but like why Apple was able to basically trick, for lack of a better word, trick the labels into agreeing to a price structure that didn't make any sense right? <laughs> because they, and, and held them hostage basically is like, yeah, the, we're just going to let everybody buy one song a piece for 99 cents instead of buying the whole album. And don't worry, eventually we're going to train people to buy whole albums again. And they never did it. And like the entire record label industry was built on the idea of selling albums, not selling single songs. The money didn't make any sense, but it's because they didn't come up with a solution earlier. Yeah, like I don't know that they could have, like maybe it was too late by the time all of that was happening to really come up with a a true solution. But yes, they, they were not participants in that solution. They were just participants in trying to um, rescue whatever was left. And that gets know? right to the heart of it. If they'd been had the forethought, they could have created that digital structure sure. that they had to end up going to Apple yes. for. You know, yep. I mean, so another company on the outside of this saw saw what was happening and said, oh, here's how we can... Sure. Change the structure of how people sell, you know, buy and how we sell music to them. Uh, now it's now that structure is gone. Now it's, it's gone. just streaming. Right. So, I yeah. mean, but again, they're always like behind. Yes. Well, <laughs> big, I mean, the, the, that's the problem with any giant industry it, is that, that like it's, it's it. I, I always say it takes once you get to a big company, it takes 25 people to say yes, to make something happen. And it only takes one of them to say no to make it not and it's happen. Done. Yeah, and, it's done. and that's why it's so hard to get anything done. It is. I don't. I don't. I don't think people are dumb. I don't think that they are. They, they don't have a survival instinct. I don't think that they don't want progress. It is the bigger something gets, the harder it is to get anything done. Simply because it only takes one person to get in the way, and that is is honestly part of the problem, like when you try to involve people in decision-making, it's why you need to take feedback, but not allow everyone to have a say, you know, like, because if everyone has a say, you'll never get anything done. Like ultimately there has to be one, there has to be a very small group of people who decide what's going to happen. You can take everyone's, everyone's input, right. but, at, but the minute in a, in a, a the minute that too many people are part of the decision-making process is the minute that nothing ever happens um, because it's very difficult to build consensus on any on any decision at all, but important game-changing decisions is very difficult to build consensus on. Which is why that, that structure, especially in the context of music and the industry and record labels, is antiquated. Yes, Because 100%. music, the way people absorb content, the way they connect to artists, the way they discover music is constantly changing. It's yep. going to change again. Mm -hmm. Spotify, that 
that model is not going to be the thing forever. No, no. Uh, so, but they can't keep up. So their relevance is still there because they can get you on the radio. That that's my opinion on a label. Like a label, radio still means something, mm-hmm. and they've sort of co-opted that ecosystem of you know promo people at labels and program directors, and you 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 know that you've been on the radio side of that. So well, and, that's and where they're a, relevant still. I think, and as a bank. Like that, they're exactly. still relevant as a bank, you know. They'll like finance you, and they'll get yeah. you on the radio. They'll put some marketing muscle behind you, but nine times out of ten, that's actually not what happens. Right. right. So when well, you sign a deal, you got to think long and hard. Yes. You, you know, and I have a particular perspective on this that a lot of other artists probably have as well. Like, what is this really going to bring to me? Right. Because, well, because you I don't know. I, I think some of it is a bank. Also, some of it is, hey, I don't know how to do this, 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 and this on my right. own. Like I know how to write music. I know how to perform. I know how to book some shows, but like all of the, every, you know, all the other stuff with getting my music to people, like, right. uh, I don't know how to do. I need somebody to help me do it. And record labels, uh, if they see some sort of, you know, monetary benefit to you, when like they, they are a good resource to doing those things. Absolutely. But it's yeah. gotta be, the stars have to align for the right situation for, for, sure. th- for that to happen. And uh, n- again, 90% of the time, <laughs> that's not what happens. Um, well, here we are. Yeah, I know. I'm looking We're at the clock. an hour. Like, yeah, I, al- yeah. I almost wonder if we should, should we hold Rihanna? Yeah, well, let's, maybe we'll punt Rihanna to the next episode. Yeah, yeah. So I what I'm thinking like- is this, because I still have my whole intro and everything for Rihanna. And that, yeah. I think that'll be a good discussion, that record. For sure. So why don't you pick another record again? Because I'll be wow. introing this. Is that okay? All right, I'll pick another record and we'll shut up about it eventually, so we can do two <laughs> records. No, so I'll just do. You know, we'll 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 punt Rihanna to the next one. I'll do the okay. setup for that one. You do your record and then okay. So sounds it's, good. It's nice and easy. I get to pick another record. Sounds yeah. good to me. Well, yeah. sorry we never got to Rihanna. Uh, at least in the headline to this in the, the the title of the episode and the description is going to be very clear that we're not talking about Rihanna um, though it may be a little confusing to you as we is say there a way we can like yeah because I'm realizing we, we set it up that way nah we would we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll put it Let's do a little bit of editing there so. yeah whatever I'll, maybe I'll do maybe I'll do an intro to the intro I'll okay. record an intro to the intro. Yeah, and then so. we're going to discuss, because I'm excited to talk about that album. We're, yeah, it's a great record. It's a great it's record. We're going to do it on the next one. So Yeah, we're going to do it. We're just building anticipation. That's exactly, all exactly. Building demand. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we'll talk to you next time when I get to pick another album. I love it. All right. That's it. We'll Stay free, my time. goose.